From time to time on this podcast, we've interviewed copywriters who seem to have a golden touch. They connect with the right clients. They start out charging more than what beginners charge, their niche, their brand, their work. It all just seems to work out. And then there are copywriters who work really hard to make things come together. They take chances that may not pay off. They struggle with low paying projects, knowing that it's just the first step on a long journey. And today's guest on the Copywriter Club podcast has more in common with that second group of copywriters than she does with the first. Copywriter, brand strategist, and direct response expert Raven Douglas has put in the hours, made the sacrifices, and grown a business that might make a lot of other copywriters drool in envy. We first met her five years ago in Manhattan, so this excellent interview has been a long time in coming. And we think you're not going to want to miss it. But before we get to our interview with Raven, uh, we have an ask for you. If you listen to the show regularly, or actually if this is your first time listening and you enjoy this episode, we would love for you to leave a review uh, for the show. And if you do uh, review the show, we will share your review in an upcoming episode. Yeah, we like to share those reviews at the end of the show. Maybe you've stuck around long enough to hear a couple of them, but we love hearing what you think about the podcast and what our guests share. So if you would just hop over to Apple Podcasts and click four or five stars, whatever you feel like it deserves, and then just leave a couple of words, uh, your thoughts about your experience with the podcast, we would really appreciate it. Yeah, I like how you did not give them the option of giving us a three star or below. Yeah, well, I mean, if they if they want to give us a one or two star review, we could read those too. But no, I don't want to read those. And we'll see what we'll see what we get in. Okay. All right. So let's get to our interview with Raven. I swindled my way in. I was an enterprising young college student, and you had to do a year in the writing lab as an English major. Anybody listening and who is writing copy will know that you don't actually really need a degree to write copy. Um, I chose English because I didn't know what to do, but I knew I was always really good at English. I did my year in the writing lab. I was out several people being college students were like, hey, can you still help me? And what they really meant is, can you write it for me? <laughs> and uh, then I said, yes. And several of those people went on to graduate. I can now say that I have my degree safely, so they can't take it from me. I wrote a lot of their papers, but they uh, opened businesses. And then they came back to me and said, hey, could you write my brochure for my business? Could you write my website? And I said, yes, and hit the library to figure out how to do it on the back end. I found an old copy book by Bob Bly, and I went, oh, I know what this is. I was taking Marketing 101, and we had just started talking about P.T. Barnum. And I said, oh, I know what this is. And I, I wrote what I can now say is very bad copy a little over 10 years ago. And I turned it into those first clients. And they went, great. How much do we owe you? And I got on Google. I said, oh, you can charge for this. Oh, you can really charge for this. And so I did. And I figured, well, if I could do this for business owners that I know, I could probably go around and ask business owners that I don't know if I could also do this for them. So I started developing that cold pitching muscle live. And then I figured out that there were these things called marketing agencies and they actually had them in small town Jackson, Mississippi. 
Um, so I started pitching them too. I was like, hey, y'all got a little bit of that overflow. I work for free. Um, and yeah, that's how I got started. I'd love to hear more about that pitching process that you you know built out. Obviously, the first couple of referrals come in. That's where a lot of copywriters start. You know, we know a few people. We do that work, but at some point, we have to start building a pipeline of clients, right? How did you reach out to them? Do you even remember that first pitch that you would make? And what were you asking for? What were you? What were you? What problem were you solving? You know, how did that all come together? That's a great question. My memory's kind of poor. I'm not going to lie. I think my first pitch was something along the lines of like, Hey, would you like to have somebody write things for your business? Because I didn't quite connect yet. The copy could bring businesses more sales. Um, that was my purview. I was just like, Hey, do you need things written for your business? You know, do you need a brochure written? Do you need your website updated? Do you even have a website? And a lot of businesses at the time didn't have websites or they didn't have great ones. And so I just asked them, I'll write it and I'll write it for free. And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. Could you just tell me what you think of it? And several of them, of course, said yes, because that was that was a great deal for them. And interestingly enough, a lot of people were either very honest or just very kind because most people did pay me. Um, but that was that was the first pitch for those businesses. And then a few businesses introduced me to other forms of copy. Like I got into a direct mail that way because they went, hey, we send out these mailers and we were thinking of creating a new one. Would you want to give it a try? And I said, yes. And I still had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but uh, it was it was really, really interesting to cut my teeth with those pitches because there were some people that just straight told me no um, because I didn't know how to sell it. I had no idea, again, what the value was, um, but it taught me very quickly to be like, oh, they need to say yes to me and I need to be able to, to articulate to them what this is going to do for them. So once I figured that out based on what some other businesses graciously told me in feedback, it's like, oh yeah, we got so many customers. They said they saw our direct mail ad. They loved it. Our, these people visited our website and they wrote us to tell us how much they loved it. And so that helped me understand like, oh, this is valuable and it brings customers in. And so then I could sell it properly or at least better. Okay. So I want to get granular real quick. And because we talk frequently with copywriters about whether or not to sell for free or whether or not to give copy away for free, can you just like speak to that and how it worked for you in more detail, um, how you phrased it, how it played out for you, why it was worthwhile, why maybe it didn't work in some situations uh, for other copywriters who are just getting started and want to try that process sure. out. How I phrased it was, because again, I was still an enterprising young college student. So this phrasing is probably going to be pretty rough. Um, but how I phrased it was like, hey, I want to write for you. Do you have things for your business that you need written? That could be brochures, that could be website, that could be anything that you need written. Even if it's a letter to your customers, I will write it. And What's best is I'll do it for free. If you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. All I ask is that you give it a try and that you tell me what you think about it. So that was that was essentially my pitch because the, the only thing I could think of at the time was that, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And it's if it's going to cost them something, then they'll probably say no. Um, I also had no idea of pricing really at the time. So I probably wouldn't have even known what to really ask for. Um, 
And those, I should also say that when those people did pay me, they did often ask on the back end, not on the front end, how much do you want? And so there was very much a trust there because for a lot of those local businesses, they also didn't really know what copy was. A lot of them weren't using marketing agencies. And so it was really great in that way. And um, obviously we're living in a bit of a different time, but there are still a lot of business owners that don't know anything about copy. So I think you can really position it if you do decide to go the free route to say like, oh, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. This is what I usually charge for this. But if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. I do think that's still viable, especially for a lot of small businesses when you start cutting your teeth. Um, As for me, when I look back on it, I think it was the right choice for what I wanted to do because I was brand spanking new. And even I didn't really have an understanding of what copywriting was, that you could really make a business out of it. I had never been introduced to a freelancer in my life. I had only ever known like, oh, you go to college and then you apply for a job. Like you go work for someone else in these big, you know, anonymous figures own companies. And like, I'll never be able to do that. Um, And I didn't know that until I met business owners who specifically approached me. And then it clicked in my head maybe a year or so later. Oh, if they could do that, then I could also run a business. Um, If I had tried to start a business, you know, without pitching for free, I wouldn't have known what to do. And I would have run into the round very quickly. And I probably would have never gone back. Like I would have just gone to work for someone straight out. um, Because again, I didn't know anything about pricing. I didn't know much about marketing. I was barely getting into cold pitching. Um, I had no idea how to sell myself and I had to learn those things. And since I had to learn those things and learn copy skills at the same time, free pitching was the best option for me. So one more question about that, you know, as they came back to you at the end and said, okay, yeah, how much you know, should we pay you or whatever? I know you didn't have a great idea of how much to ask for, but just so I have a, a baseline, what were those projects, you know, what did they involve and about how much were you getting for those first few projects? Was it just a few hundred dollars? Was it more than that? Sure. Uh, actually, in one case, it was less than that. Okay. I am very unashamed to say, I think the very first project I charged something like $55 because it was a brochure. And I was just like, oh, it's just a piece of paper. It's, you know, one of those threefold brochures that they were handing out to people. And I had no idea like, oh, this person's going to print a bunch of them and hand them out to a bunch of people. And that's really valuable. And so I was, they were like, yeah, what can you, what are you charging? And I was like, oh, just 50 something. And then the website, when the next client asked me, what do I owe you for the website? That's when I got on Google. And I think I saw at the time it was maybe like three or $4,000 was the first thing I came across. And I was like, I can't charge that much. There's no way I could charge that much. And so I charged them $700 for their website. That is how much I charge for my first website, $700. My world. <laughs> um, okay. So can you catch us up from when you're just getting started out to now? I mean, it doesn't have to be all the details, but just, I want to understand kind of the context of where you are today. So to begin with, I will say that this is probably controversial for a lot of copywriters. I did not niche down. I did not for a long time. And when I say a long time, i June made 10 years that I've been doing this and I can't believe it's been that long. And I didn't niche down for maybe seven of those 10 years. So I really pitched everybody that I could find, took every single project, scoured the internet. And the way that I did some cold pitching was it was a bit of a dance because 
I was pitching people who were already looking for copywriters. Like I would get on the job postings and I went, oh, they're looking for a copywriter for a job. I don't know if I can do this job for real yet, but they probably could, you know, just take me for some contract work. That'll work. Um, and so I wrote for everything from HVAC systems to crawl spaces, which are really gross, by the way. Um, I wrote for a lot of retail because I was a store manager at the time. Then I started writing for education because I was a teacher. Um, and I just took all of those things and I never said no to anything. I found a niche in the beauty space many, many years later, especially in the natural hair and skincare spaces. They were great to me. Um, I loved them. And I did that for a number of years before I swapped into personal development and then eventually tech and e-commerce. So uh, within that, I did just about top to bottom of funnel for direct response. I'd also done some brand copy because of course I'd always ask agencies for work and there were a lot of brand agencies who were cranking out because we know the grind. Um, so they always needed help. And I wrote so many different types of copy until one day I sat down and went like, all right, I think I could really make a business out of this. How do I do that in a way that I actually enjoy it? Actually, TCC in real life was a big part of helping me do that. I'm curious as you were jumping from niche to niche. Yeah. Occasionally, was it as you do the work, you're like, ah, I don't love the niche. Let me try something else. Or was it just this, hey, work is coming in. I want to play with everything. And then when you did decide to niche down, what was the thing that made you say, I'm going to give up the other stuff and lean into this? It was a little bit of both. So some of the things were, hey, I don't love the work particularly when it came to the personal growth and development space, it's I'm forever closed to the personal growth and development space as of this stage in my copy career. Shout out to everybody who loves it. Um, for me, I really found on the other side of it that I didn't like the, I didn't like the niche at all. Um, it felt very, for me, the direct response and personal growth development felt very intangible. And what's interesting is I usually say, like, as long as I can understand something, I don't have to necessarily believe in it or agree with it. But as long as it's not ethically or morally against what I believe, you know, as long as we're not lying to people, as long as we're not falsely advertising and I understand it, even the audience, I can write it even if I don't agree with it. But personal growth and development was the first time that I was like, yeah, no, this this is not going to work for me long term. Um, there were other things that like uh, HVAC systems that I said, oh, this isn't this isn't interesting to me. Like I could keep writing it. I just don't really enjoy it. It's kind of boring. Um, and then there were other things that like when I got into the beauty space, I was like, wow, this is so easy because these are things that I already do. I really enjoy this. When I got into the tech space, ironically enough, it wasn't just because it was so easy. It was because I was like, wow, tech is really boring. It sounds very boring. I would like to change that. I wonder if tech could not be boring because people, humans are using technology, but they sound like these big giant corporations that no one can really connect to. Uh, and then e-commerce was, it's a gauntlet. It was and still is a gauntlet because there are so many sales that come up for the holidays. And so there are these huge campaigns, email sequence after email sequence and offer after offer, and then all the updates for the websites. Um, but I found joy in that probably because I'm a shopaholic. So I said like, okay, I don't like these things and, and I do like these things. And this is, this is how it gets started. And like I said, beauty caught my eye because I was like, wow, this is so easy. I love it. I could do this in my sleep. 
in a couple of days, I did do it very sleep deprived. So, yeah. I'm wondering when you felt like you figured this out as a business owner, because, you know, we're talking about the beginning of your journey and pitching, but, you know, was there a moment or even just a, you know, a specific year where you're like, okay, I can do this. I can do this long-term. I understand what goes into running a business now. Yes. So I was a teacher back in 2017 was my last year teaching. And I was starting to get more work than I could handle while I was also teaching because teaching is a job and a half. Truly, I don't know how people who teach and have kids do both um, because it's just the job never stops. It's, you know, there's all the lesson planning and all the grading and all the remediation and tutoring lessons that you have to have. So you don't actually get a planning period. And then all the calling parents that can't happen during the school day. So it has to happen after the school day. And just, it's a never ending thing. And I remember coming home so exhausted every, every single day. And at that time, I technically, it's going to sound really grueling, had four jobs. So when I first started teaching, I was a piece of delivery driver, a delivery driver for Domino's. And I was still running something like a business and I was teaching. Then I stopped driving for Domino's after a year. So many stories about that. Most of them are not good. And I started tutoring for Sylvan Learning Center. And one year I was also a STEM competition coach helping kids build robots. And I was still teaching and I was still writing. And after a year, I stopped coaching STEM because it was a program where you had to rotate out, but I was still tutoring and I was still teaching. Tutoring didn't take up that much time, but teaching did. And I started having to turn down more work. And I thought to myself, like, actually, it's not that bad. And I think I could make more money doing this than I could teach it because I was teaching in Mississippi, which teachers already get paid the pits. They get paid below the pits somewhere near the pits of hell, if you're teaching in Mississippi. And when I did the math, I think after taxes, I was bringing home, if I didn't count my writing income, I was bringing home less than $25,000 a year, even working all that time. And I was like, you know, this is, this is literally below the poverty line and I'm having to turn down work now. And if I do it this way, I could probably decide what I want to do when I want to do it. I think I'm gonna make this a full-time thing. So I did. The caveat is I had no idea how to make it a full-time thing. So it was a real struggle from June, let's see, the, the euphoria wore off maybe toward the end of June, 2017 until like January, 2018 is when things were pretty dire. And I was like, all right, you gotta make something shake. And um, I'd been researching TCC and I chose, I chose TCC. Well, and, and I guess it was right after that, that we met you, right? Because you came to New York and I think there's a story here. We've talked a little bit about this, like how you got there. You meant, you just mentioned the TCC and the IRL, the, the actual um, in-person event that we held uh, was a part of this change, but tell us about that struggle to get to the event and then just, you know, connecting with other copywriters there, the, the people who were there, what was that impact on your business? Oh, struggle was correct. And the impact was immense. Um, So actually, that's when I just started to really kind of think about niching down into beauty. I had had a client um, for whom, and this is the first time I got like the most polite FU feedback ever. The very first draft that I turned in, the client said, oh, Raven, I realized I forgot to ask if you'd ever done this kind of work before. 
That's such great feedback. That was such great feedback. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, so that was a really rusty, rusty project. And it was like very rocky, really struggled our way through. We made it. But the client, I think, um, was not super impressed with the journey to get there. They didn't pay me for over a month. And on a last ditch effort, I sent an invoice because I'd seen TCC IRL's tickets and I knew that I wanted to go. Uh, I was also in my last month at my apartment because I was getting ready to move in with my friend whose husband was um, being deployed. And they positioned it in such a way to try and give me grace to save face. I'm like, oh, I don't want her in this big house alone. But the truth is, I didn't know how to run a business, so I didn't have steady business coming in. So I was not going to be able to afford my rent, which was only $600, by the way. Um, so when that client paid that invoice, which I was shocked because it was probably the fourth or fifth time that I'd sent it, I bought my TCC IRL ticket before I paid my rent. And then I paid my rent. And then I figured, oh, no, how am I going to get from Jackson, Mississippi to New York City during Valentine's Day weekend? And the plane ticket was 900 bucks. I didn't have that. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, the plane ticket was 900 bucks round trip. I didn't have that. So I took a Greyhound bucks, 28 hours, and I wore three layers of clothes. And then because I didn't really, really know how to work the New York subway, I actually had a meeting with a potential client that did turn into a client later just before the conference uh, started. But I got off at Port Authority and I walked 14 blocks. Uh, and then I changed into heels just outside of their door and had that first meeting. Um but I got there and I slept on a friend of a friend's couch because I also could not afford the Hotel Bowery, which was a wonderful boutique hotel, which is too expensive for me. Um, so literally a friend from high school that I hadn't spoken to in years, her best friend, let me sleep on their couch in Brooklyn. So I took the train over every day to the conference. And but when I got there, I got into this room of people and I was like, oh, my gosh, there are all these people that are just like me but they are so much better at this thing than me. They actually make real livings from this. This is where I'm supposed to be. Um, so in terms of like the people that I met there, amazing folks, obviously like some of the heavyweights that most people listening to this will probably know, Kevin Rogers, Marcella Allen, um, Kim Krause Schwamm, A.B. Posner, many of whom I saw at the last TCC IRL this year. And obviously I also met you all. Um, I met Hillary Rice, which is still a hoot. I'm on her email list. Laura Belgrade, like there were so many people that I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And I need to figure out how to do what they do. And the conference was exactly that. It was bless you both. It was the art of running a copy business, really, and not just writing copy, because I think you all have really honed in on the niche of like, there are so many programs that teach you how to write copy. Running a business is where a lot of copywriters fail. And because the number one question for so many of us is still like, oh, how do I get clients? It's, do, do you have any more of those? Like, could I get a couple? Um, so yeah, TCC taught me how to do that. And it was Amy Posner's sales script, actually, that is a, the same version of that script that I use today that helped me land my biggest deal at the time, which was $5,000, um, about two weeks after TCC. And after that, my trajectory was straight up. My close rate shot up to something like 83%. Um, and after that, my business just kind of grew and it almost outgrew me. <laughs> so thank you both for that. 
Yeah. And, be- and because you teased it, I was going to ask, you know, which, which talks really helped you the most? Cause there's so many great ones. Um, because you mentioned Amy, uh, can you share just, you know, a highlight of the script since you're using it today, it worked for you. You know, if someone listening is like, that sounds great. I want to use that. Yeah. I do what Raven's doing. And, you know, Amy shared. So, yes. So interestingly enough, I think it's a lot like a sales letter in that respect. Like there's the intro and when you get to the problem, for example, you let them tell you the problem and then you give a bit of expository about you. So, you know, you're just like, okay, so tell me a bit more about your project. And they, they do, cause people love to talk about problems. We love to complain. <laughs> so they'll tell you exactly what's wrong and why they need it. Um, now, if someone's like very, very savvy and like they've worked with a bunch of copywriters before, then of course, make sure you're paying attention, take copious notes if you can listen and write at the same time, because they will really expect you to know. Um, But especially if you're getting started with smaller businesses or startups, like a lot of times they've not worked with copywriters and that really works to your advantage. Um, And a lot of people are probably thinking, well, no, I want to work with people who are educated and not. And it depends on the kind of clients that you want to take. For me and where I was at the time, people who had never worked with copywriters was easy because that way all I had to do was introduce copy as a solution because I already knew copy was great. And they already had an inkling that it might be, but they weren't really sure. So and that was why they were on the call with me, at least that's how I framed it in my head. So you start with the problem, then you give a bit of an intro of who you are and you intro what the solution can be through who you are. Like you tell them about your story in brief, and then you use their problems to actively build the solution as you are talking to them. Now that piece is a bit more difficult and does take time to hone that skill. I personally recommend practicing with your friends and family, anybody who listen to you, even hopping on Zoom and recording yourself with that script to say like, okay, so here's what I heard about your problem. You are looking for this, this, and this. I would suggest, and then you start building out your deliverables from there and you explain to them what those deliverables are. I would suggest this deliverable to to address this and here's why. I I would suggest this to address this and here's why. And you don't get to pricing until the very end of the call. Because I know that a lot of people think like, oh, what are they going to do and freak about pricing? But you structure it that way because you've already given them a chance to describe their problem. You've told who you are and introduced the solution. Your solution as you go in depth nails bit by bit exactly how you are going to solve their problem. This is why this is the solution. So by the time it's over, you ask them like, okay, this is the part of the call where I really like to discuss what a lot of people consider the elephant in the room. I want to talk about price because I don't believe in people getting things that they don't like and paying for them. I also don't believe in pricing being a surprise. I love to build custom packages. So let's talk quotes. If you're unable to do that on the call, because I know that pricing is still a very intimidating thing for copywriters, you say like, okay, now that we've gotten through this, I would love to take a day or two to write up a proposal and you give a quote range, no matter what you do, if you're able to um, absolutely think of a number for that price in your head on the call, or if you're not, you still give a quote range. So that way it doesn't lock you in. You give the bottom of your quote range, and this is definitely what I learned from Amy, the bottom of your quote range being what you absolutely would feel comfortable with to do the work. The top of your quote range is whatever your dream pricing would be. And usually when you sit down to do the proposal, it falls somewhere within that range. So when they get the proposal, 
the prospect doesn't feel surprised because you already told them it was going to fall within there. And as long as it's not at the very max, they usually feel like they've gotten a deal. So that you've got some psychology working there for you too. You also don't feel gypped. You haven't undercut yourself because you've done the work, but you didn't lock yourself into a price up front. So you had a chance to explore it. Um, and then you ask them if they have any other follow-up questions so they feel good about it. For those people who are fact finders, they have a chance to ask you more questions while you're on the call and you tell them the deadline when you'll send the proposal. You've usually gotten a yes on the call. So it's just a matter of them going through the proposal and signing it. And that's, that's the, the method that has worked for me until this day. All right, so Rob, I want to dig into this part of the conversation with you, but you know, before we do that, I'm just curious, did you ever write papers for your classmates like no. Raven? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. And it, it's funny, you know, when she's talking about that, I, I used to work in a business where um, we created logos for different, you know, small businesses. And there was a competitor or two who were doing the same thing and they were charging like, nothing or whatever. And I kind of got the sense that it was actually a paper mill and they were using this logo business as a front to make, make the business look, you know, kosher and, and real, whatever. And it was actually doing all this, uh, illegal plagiarizing or what. Anyway, I, um, no shame that, you know, Raven was the one that everybody called on to, to help with those papers, but nobody ever saw my writing in, uh, in college worth, hiring me to do it for them. I know. I feel bummed that people, no one asked me to write their paper for them. Like, I feel like I wasn't as impressive as I should have been. You know, I want, I wish people would have asked me to do it. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of those things, right? One of the things that I want to point out from this interview, and, and we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, Raven talked about how she started taking on free work at the beginning of her business. And I know there are a lot of copywriters who say you should never do this, never give away your work for free. And I think there's definitely an idea there that's that's worth thinking about. Yeah, of course, we create value. And so, of course, we want to make sure that we're getting paid for what we do. However, and we've mentioned this in a few places, but cash is not the only way that you can get paid. And sometimes the experience of working with a client, sometimes a testimonial or a case study or the opportunity to leverage what you're doing for a client for free into the next paying job is actually worth taking that opportunity. And so, you know, if you're listening and you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a beginning copywriter, I don't even know where to get started. I don't know how to charge. I'm not sure any of that stuff, but I know I could do something for free for somebody. If you can get one of those other things out of it, testimonial, case study, opportunity for more work, experience, that's okay. And you can take that project. I think you want to make sure that you don't do free work more than just a couple of times though, before you're really taking advantage of the things that you're getting for that. So worth pointing out. And, you know, obviously Raven did that in her business and look where it's gotten her. Yeah. There is no right way to get started. And we've, I mean, we've interviewed hundreds of copywriters now and everyone has a different way in and um, I think my takeaway from all of it and hearing Raven talk about it is just like, there's, there is no one way. I love that she had this guarantee. I mean, it's really just a strong guarantee that Raven created to get started that she'd give her copy away for free if they, if they don't like it. It was a brilliant approach to getting started. And as she talked about it, I mean, it's, it's not like Raven has regrets about giving anything away for free. It, 
propelled her and helped her move forward. So um, I think it's a smart way to opt in if it clicks for you. I think there can occasionally be an upside to that too. When you leave it up to your client to say what the value of your copy was occasionally, not always, but occasionally they'll come back and pay you more than you might've even asked for, especially when you're just starting out. And so, you know, if you're, if you're willing to try it out, go for it. But obviously, if you can get a client to pay even, you know, $50, $55 for a first project, whatever that ends up being, take the money for sure. Yeah. And Raven, I sold her first uh, package for $55. It was the brochure. And I like the way she talked about it. You know, she said she only sold it for $55 because she thought it was just a piece of paper. And now, you know, now she realizes that it's not just a piece of paper, it's a sales tool. And it could reach thousands of people over time and um, create thousands of dollars, maybe more uh, value for the client. So I know a lot of this conversation was around articulating the value. And I think it's okay to borrow borrow um, that messaging from other copywriters. I mean, that's why we created this podcast so we could have these conversations and talk about the value of what we all create as copywriters because um, sometimes we need to borrow that language from someone who has a little bit more experience in order to articulate the value, especially if if we still aren't sure and we're figuring it out. And that's okay. You're not stealing someone else's promise. You're just talking about what value there is in what we do as copywriters. And you can start doing that at any stage. You don't have to wait until you have 10 clients uh, that you've worked with. Yeah, I agree. So Kara, what did you think about uh, Raven's hesitancy to choose a niche? Obviously, we talk a lot about the power of niching and and how helpful it can be, you know, in connecting with the right clients, in charging more for your work. But clearly, it's not the right path for everyone. Well, I mean, she did end up choosing a niche and then she pivoted, you know, four times maybe. And, you know, I'm sure she will continue to pivot. That's what we all do. So I think for me, it was just more a reminder of uh, we're never stuck with a niche. And I think that takes some pressure off. I feel like a lot of the pushback against niching down is because it's like, oh, I don't want to be stuck with one thing forever. Uh, But it's just it's a long journey and there's going to be many different pivots. And I think the pivots are coming faster and faster uh, in our in our career path. And so um, I just remind myself of that when I feel a little bit stuck that it's okay, and I'm probably going to pivot, you know three or four more times over the next 10 years. And that's just part of the process. Yeah. It makes me wonder what is the next pivot where, uh, you know, what's the business that's going to be the next thing that you or I lean into in our own businesses. Oh, well, I, that's what a good are you question. Thinking? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. It's, it's, it's out there. Um, maybe waste management, maybe, uh, no, I, I, I have no, no idea. I have me, no idea. But you do you. And you. No, I think the pivoting is the exciting part. So I'm glad that Raven shared that. Like to me, that's what makes what we do as business owners and you know entrepreneurs really exciting. It's not just finding a path and sticking to one path. It's the evolution. It's like that the market's changing, the world's changing, and like the people, the business owners I admire the most, and and are the ones who can pivot and just like swerve and they're more resilient and they can bounce back and like they pay attention to the market. They pay attention to what's happening with their clients. And like, those are the the entrepreneurs I want to be more like, because those, those are the ones that last. And so that's Raven. Like that's Raven. 
This is something that we see happening all the time in the think tank, the accelerator in our programs as copywriters lean into some of the things that they're focused on, they want to work on. And then sometimes they discover, oh, this isn't the best fit. Let's lean out and figure out, you know, what is the next thing? And you know, it is a process that hopefully lasts for our entire careers and keeps everything interesting. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I, I just really loved Raven's story. I'm glad that she shared her IRL story for our first big event in 2018. It was so fun to meet Raven there. And I didn't know her backstory and that, you know, she traveled from Mississippi because we met her for the first time. And so to hear the story of how much time she put into traveling and making that trip, how much effort, energy, um, to be there and be in the room. And so I just, it's just one of my favorite IRL stories. It's just really inspiring. And it also shows you, you know, what Raven was willing to invest in her business and career. And I'm glad that it paid off. And that was a contributor to what she's done in her, in her business. Yeah, I agree. I didn't know that that was going on in the background that first time that we met Raven either. And the takeaway for me from that story, as I think about my own situation is what am I willing to do? What yeah. lengths am I willing to go to in order to realize my dreams? And, you know, whatever, whatever that goal is, whether it's a personal goal, whether it's a business goal, what, you know, whether it's something else, it's like, am I willing to take the risk, you know, hop on the bus, not knowing, you know, what the exact, you know, sleeping arrangements would be or, you know, having to wear four pair, four, four outfits so that I've got something to wear each day at the conference. Like, uh, it's such an amazing uh, willingness to invest in herself and just that confidence that she was going to make it work. And I really admire that about Raven. And I think there are probably hundreds of people listening talking who may ask themselves the same question. What am I willing to invest? What am I, what risks am I willing to take in order to realize my dreams? It's a good question. Yeah, that's, I, I like that way of looking at it. You know, it's the risk, what risk am I willing to take? And then also, yeah, what am I willing to sacrifice for Raven? It was time, it was comfort. Um, it was, it could be many different things. And so at every stage in the business, like there's always a sacrifice of some sort and just thinking through, what is that for me today? And I, am I willing to make that sacrifice? Is it worth it? And being intentional about it. I really like that approach. I agree. Let's get back to our interview with Raven and find out a little bit more about what she's charging for her copy projects, as well as talk about some of the sales process stuff. As we're talking about pricing, I'd love to like add another bookend to your pricing. We know one, at one point you charge $55 for a project. As you've used this script, what are the larger projects that you've booked? Maybe even the largest project that you've booked. What are you charging for those? All right. Largest project that I've booked has been $37,000. I could not believe that I charged that much. Um, and if you can believe it, it was only for email sequences and one landing page, I think, is for a couple email sequences and one landing page. Okay, so explain that a little bit because that sounds like, <laughs> I know, I'm like, like a dream for a lot of people. Like, wait a second, there's got to be, yeah, there's got to be a little bit more than that. Two hundred. So there's several. There are several emails. I believe it was five email sequences. The lowest amount of emails in the sequences was three, um, and the highest amount of emails in the sequence was twelve. 
the landing page is, I should also mention it, it was one landing page, but it had three iterations because of the segmentation that we were doing with the audiences. So it wasn't like it was just this completely light lift. Um, but I charged that because we were doing like high ticket funnel sales. And I was like, okay, we could either do, cause I was trying to explore um, revenue sharing. They weren't open to that. And I was like, okay, we could do this this way or we could also do this this way. Um, and they were trying to give me a bit of pushback to get me to sign an NDA. And I was like, well, if you, if you get me to sign an NDA the price is gonna double because this, this hinders my ability to do the work and you need this on a bit of a tighter timeline. So like, we're already looking at a little bit of a rush fee here. And they went like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not paying double for this. Um, so we settled on the happy medium of 37K. That one took some negotiating, um, obviously, because we went back and forth on it. And they were like, well, you know, like, I think this deliverable should be this. And I'm like, okay, we can do that. But then we're going to take these deliverables off. Like, if you want to bring the price down, we're going to take these deliverables off. Because at first it had like more of a full funnel feel. There were ads to it. There were sales page. And then they went, oh, you know, I think we could maybe reuse some of those materials since they're all going to drive to the same place. These are the things that critically need changing. Um, so yeah, I went from $55. I know it sounds really unbelievable to 37 K. And, uh, these days my projects are usually around the 20 to 25 K range on average. Okay. So many questions. Um, just answer the one you want to answer because I have so many, uh, I want to hear about how, how you positioned it with the value, because I mean, clearly you were positioning it as 37,000 because there's so much value and they can use the copy over and over again and blah, 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 like all the things we know. But, um, how did you talk about it so that they got the value as you were selling it for that high ticket price? Yeah. Okay. So to start, I, I asked them, and this was a thing that I did learn at TCC IRL as well. Like when you're working with clients who have already worked with copywriters, definitely ask in your intake survey about their past results, ask them to see their past um, marketing information, everything, but you really want their results if you can get that, because that gives you an idea of what copy can do for what they have working already. So that gives you an idea of the ROI that they are currently seeing. If you know that you can meet or exceed that ROI, then like you've got, you've got that in the bag to be able to say that, especially if you already have results. Thankfully I did. So I positioned it to say like, okay, well with this kind of funnel that you have working, here's the results that you've consistently seen. I think that we can raise this, you know, two percentage points or five percentage points or whatever um, for here, this is going to amount to about X amount in ROI for you. Like if you sell just one of these packages, then you have already returned the money on your investment with me. And you just need one. And you were looking to take 10 people into this program. You normally get four people in this program at a time. And we are, we are shooting for 10. I know that I can get you more than four and somewhere around your goal of 10. If you've just sold one of these packages and you usually get four, like if you can get more, doesn't that sound like a crazy return on your investment? And they went, you know, like, I mean, I think I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. Do you offer a money back guarantee? And I said, no, I don't offer a money back guarantee, but I do offer a, if we miss the mark, then we can offer additional promo and I will do additional work guarantee. And I learned that one from Mark Pischetti, um, 
who was not at TCC IRL, but was a part of the TCC community and, and I met him through there. Um, I learned that one through there. And these days I don't do that now because I definitely have a lot more results to back up to say like, these are the kind of results that we get. And I know that copy is one part to a whole. So if it didn't perform, it's not solely blamed on copy. Um, but at the time I didn't have quite as many results. And I also just wasn't comfortable asking for money at that magnitude. Uh, Cause it was more money than I'd ever seen at one time. Like I used to make less than 25 grand a year. Um, so 37 K in one project was like crazy for me. So I, I went like, okay, you know, I'm willing to work on the email sequences, work on the landing page until they convert. Thankfully, we didn't have to do too many iterations, but that was how I got them to say yes. Uh, I, I love that. And as I'm thinking about the process in doing this, it strikes me that to ha even have that conversation with your client, you've got to be really good at asking questions on the front end about their business, how they make money, where customers are coming from, so that you can actually have that impact. We talk a little bit about that vetting process that you go through so that you can actually discover that information that leads to that final conversation about money? Sure. So I have an introductory intake form where they just answer. And obviously, since they're like new to me, um, even if they're a referral, because these days most of my work comes from referrals because I am a little bit in less indirect response and more into UX writing now. And that field is even smaller. Um, but I, I do like a short seven question intake form to ask them, you know, what kind of business do they run? What industry is it in? What kind of marketing do they use? Um, what is their annual revenue? Um, what number would they love to see in their annual revenue? And have they ever worked with a copywriter before? Like those are kind of the baseline questions that I ask. Uh, and then when I get on the call, part of part of like uh, them telling me about their problem, if I can tell that like they are not answering some of those questions because maybe they're not quite as experienced and they haven't worked with a copywriter before, then I will ask that before I do my intro. I'll get very, very in-depth and be like, okay, tell me about your last launch. How many deliverables did you have in your last launch? What does your email list look like? Um, what would you like to see most in your email list? What's the biggest failure that you've seen in your marketing? And why do you think it failed? Um, those are some of the introductory questions that I'll ask. I'll even ask them like, what do you think about info funnels? What if you have product funnels, like what do you think um, about product funnels? What's the product funnel that you most often use? Have you ever taken any training for funnels? How did you get into your business? Um, because asking them their story as well will give you usually an idea of whether they have used the ask method or whether they use the PLF formula or, you know, like whether they learned because they started working inside of a marketing organization. Um, and if they're not able to answer any of those questions and I start to get a little bit more granular and say like, all right, I want to pause this real quick and ask very baseline for the product that you are trying to sell. How do you envision selling it? Can you walk me through start to finish of the buyer's journey? And I pick apart each stage of that journey and I say, okay, well, so they enter your journey here. So they enter your journey through cold search. It sounds like they're very problem aware. They're not very solution aware. Huh? Okay. That's really good to know. And I'm taking notes that entire time. I'm also recording the call so that I can go back on it. Um, but that gives me a good idea as to whether or not I even want to pitch them, you know, as we continue through the call, because if I hear too many red flags for me, then I say like, okay, you know, I think that we're at a stage where we should take a pause. I firmly believe in ethical selling and especially in my own business, 
I already told you, I don't believe in people paying for a thing that they don't like. And I definitely don't believe in selling people a thing that I don't think can help them. I could take your money, but I see some issues in your funnel right now. And I think you might want to start here and address these issues in your funnel. I am not a funnel strategist, though I can offer you some consultation. That would be a different conversation. And if you want to switch gears with that, we can do that now. But we can't get to any execution on copy. If you want to talk to a funnel strategist, I know some that I might be able to recommend to you. You get on their books and see if you're open. And I've had people push back a couple of times to say like, oh, no, like I, I just need copy. And I say, I am unable to help you at present because I truly do not believe in selling people a product that they can't use. And right now I see a break in your funnel. I know that copy is not going to make the difference for you because you have to address this issue in your funnel. And a lot of times that that issue for anybody wondering is targeting. A lot of times they are they think they're targeting one person and they're actually targeting someone else. Okay, let's say the conversation you mentioned the consultation option, mm-hmm. um, and they go for that option. What happens then? How do you you're booking another call, and how much do you charge for that? How do you run that call? Because I like that plan and that approach. Yes. So we are booking another call. They have another survey that they have to fill out pre-consultation, which has some of the questions that we covered, as well as more in-depth questions. Um, And I always like to ask, what do they look to get out of the call? Because that gives me an idea of where their expectations are. So that the first thing that I do when I get on the call is set expectations for what we can achieve during that consultation hour. Um, because a lot of people will think like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have a copy written in an hour. No, you are going to have a strategy defined that you can then take to have anyone execute in an hour. Um, And I also like do a bit of prep work with the emails that they get, like not just the intake email, but I also do like a what to expect after they filled out that that prep call, I will edit it if I think, you know, somebody has like some extra, but it's a templatized email that spells out like what the agenda is going to be, roughly what it's going to look like. It is very plug and play um, so that you can insert those pieces for um, whoever it is that you're consulting. And then we get on the call. Like I said, I start with expectations first and we go through the agenda. Like I said, usually the issue is targeting most often. So I've actually done some back-end work before we even get on the call to research a bit more of their audience and say like, okay, here's who you're targeting at present because I have your target audience doc. Here's what I have found online through this source, this source, this source. I want to go through and highlight the differences and how they matter for your product or service, like why this matters. Like, look at what these people are saying. Look at what these people are saying. Look at what these people are saying. And do you see how this doesn't match up to your target audience? And they go, yes. And they, well, how do I build that back? And this is what we are going to do in this call. So we're going to start with their basics of demographic. Where are they? Who are they? What do they care about? And we go through each stage of the consultation call like that. Cindy, you talk about this stuff. Raven, again, going back to that first IRL when we met you, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just amazing how much your, your um, business has grown, how much your knowledge of marketing has grown since that first day. And obviously, uh, we see that because we invited you to come speak at the last IRL in Nashville, and you killed it on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever imagine, see, like when you were sitting there in the front row, at the first one, did you ever think, hey, I'm going to be on that stage or, you know, I'm going to be at this place in my business where I'm going to be showing up as the expert or, you know, is it is it like total serendipity, unexpected? 
What were you thinking? It was really unexpected. I did not at all imagine it. And I just thought to myself, these people are experts. They've been doing this and they really know what they're doing. They're charging the big bucks. They're charging the money that I wish I could charge. Like, I bet they're staying in the Hotel Bowery. They're not sleeping on a friend of a friend's couch. And they don't have to take a 32-hour bus ride back in the snow. Um, so, no, I didn't, I didn't think about it. Even when you all asked me to just facilitate a workshop for TCCIRL, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. I applied not thinking that I would get a yes because who am I? Um, and then when you all asked me to speak this year, I was just like, this is great. Even every time somebody asked me to do a podcast, I'm like, are you sure you want to hear from me? Like, it's, I mean, I'm just kind of figuring this out as I go. Um, but I mean, like I just did a podcast for uh, somebody who runs um, a podcast for people who are new to the tech industry. And they were asking about UX writing and how you could get started. And so many people wrote me after that podcast interview to say, this is amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm always in awe anytime because it's, I didn't dream it at all. And to this day, I don't market myself. Like a large part of my business is from referrals. And before that, my business largely came from cold pitching. So it's, it's always interesting. And someone's like, me? Little old me? Are you sure? Are you sure you're sure? Have you thought this through? Um, so yeah, but it's been a great experience because I do really love being able to share and to connect with other copywriters, um, to connect with other people who are thinking about being copywriters and at least try and pay it forward because somebody did it for me. Okay. So before we kind of wrap the conversation around money, I know we've ended up talking about money a lot today. And, um, you know, as I'm listening to you speak about selling a 37K project and how far you've come from the original one, I'm just wondering, are there any money mindset like practices or anything that you've worked on over the years to help you be able to sit on a call and throw out and negotiate these big numbers with confidence? I know part of it's practice and repetition and then just time, you know, doing it over and over again. What else has helped you that may help other copywriters who are struggling to throw out a big number? Sure. So a couple things that have helped me, because one actually came from an SVP at Salesforce. I asked her, as you started climbing the ladder, as it will, like as you started your leadership journey, what's the most surprising or shocking thing that you would not have known? On, on, on the side of being an individual contributor, like before you started becoming a leader, that you would have never guessed in your wildest dreams. And she said that the people at the top don't know a whole lot more than you do. And I went, are you serious? And she's like, I sit in meetings with CEOs all day and they don't know a whole lot more than you do. In fact, sometimes they know less. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. And that, that piece helped me, um, not just to humanize a CEO, because like when I'm sitting on with, you know, the, the head of marketing for a tech company or something, it's like, oh my gosh, this company does, you know, millions of dollars a year and they're still not profitable. Um, but they, they definitely do millions more than like I've seen in a year. And when I'm sitting on those calls, I go like, you know what, this person probably doesn't know a whole lot more than I do. And more than anything, they're coming to me because they believe that I could be an expert at what I do. What I do is valuable. I have literally seen the numbers to see the results. And before I had the results, I literally saw that other people could do it. 
And if I didn't know how to do it and people will go like, oh, well, why me? No, I was going to get somebody to teach me how to do it because it wasn't that I couldn't learn. I knew that I was at least capable to try. And I also honestly just got tired of being broke. Like, and I had a real talk with myself to just be like, you know, I mean, you could keep shopping at Dollar Tree for groceries or you could start asking for these numbers that you've seen other people do. And you could do the things that scare you because if you're scared, then you're usually in the right place. Fear is a thing that intentionally tries to hold you back because if you hold yourself back, nothing else has to do any of that work. You do it yourself. And I went, okay, all right. I could ask, what's the worst that could happen? I started playing like a a worst case scenario, kind of like if anybody's ever watched This Is Us and Beth and Randall did like, can we do worst case? I'm like, okay, worst case is they could tell me I'm absolutely insane, that I'm nuts, laugh in my face, maybe curse me out and hop off the call. How does that feel? And I went like, oh, you know, I could deal with that. Okay. We could do it. Um, Other money mindsets really had to do around paying myself first, which I know a lot of copywriters have said, but paying myself first in such a way that I, one, wasn't overpaying myself because that's also a thing. And I think a lot of people don't talk about that, that you do still need money to make money. Like if you're running a business, you need to be able to allocate um, and you have to be able to discipline yourself well enough to understand how to pay yourself as an employee and not just like spend all of your money. Um, because me, I have a spender relationship with money. So I really had to learn that. Um, and the other piece of mindset that I had to learn to be able to, uh, just handle this much money coming in and coming out. And then also to be able to ask for it was my mom used to say this to me all the time. Closed mouths don't get fed. If I don't ask, I am always going to be this level of broke. And I know that this level of broke doesn't work for the life I want. So I'm going to ask and I'm going to be bold because if all these other people can do it again, I can do it. And the worst that can happen is they tell me no. I love that. Not to wrap up, but to change the topic just a little bit. I am, I'm like totally um, into travel, working while you travel. You had an experience where you left the country, uh, worked in Asia for a while. Um, Tell us about just the, the experience of, working from another place. And I I know we've got people around the world listening to the podcast. So for us, what another place is, is maybe home for them, but uh, having that travel experience, experiencing a different culture, wherever it is, or wherever you go, just tell us a little bit about that. And did that have an impact on your business? Yes. Okay. I'll start with the, did it have an impact on my business part first? Cause I think that could be really valuable for a lot of people who are thinking about uh, becoming digital nomads, essentially. No, it did not. But also because I learned very early on that people do discriminate by location. Um, A lot of times they will discriminate and say like, oh, well, you can't work the hours or anything like that. And as long as I was willing to make the time for wherever my clients were, I never saw an issue in telling them like, oh, where are you located right now? If they asked me, then I told them. But it wasn't something that I lived with because I quickly did learn Um, even from hearing stories of others, not other copywriters who, you know, were digital nomads, but also other copywriters were just in these other countries that they were heavily discriminated against. And I was like, all right, well, we won't, we just won't mention where we're at. 
Um, and I had some experience with that being a Southerner because there were people who discriminated and just thinking like, oh, the South is this little backwoods place. And it's like, no, there are actually people who live there um, and they they can do the job too. So no, um, I did let my existing, client, existing clients know that I was making the move and they were obviously they had some questions. Like I made sure in um, my intro emails that they were able to book time with me if they had additional questions outside of the email that I sent them that let them know a few people did book time with me. Um, but thankfully I didn't lose any business in that because they, we had been working together long enough at that point that they trusted me to say like, okay, Raven's got it. You know, we, we trust that like, she'll do us right. Um, so no, it did not affect my business and it did not affect my ability to win new business. It did mean sometimes that I had some late night and some very early morning calls for people who are on the other side of the world um, in the West. But it also interestingly gave me an entirely new realm of business for people who were in Australia, for example, because it was a lot easier to make those calls while I was living in Southeast Asia, those call times. Um, so that was really nice. And in terms of what it was like, first, Southeast Asia was hot. Um, so let's start there. <laughs> it's Malaysia is on the equator. And so there is no such thing as seasons. There's hot and then there's hot and rainy. Um, next, the language barrier was not really a language barrier at all. Just about everybody in Kuala Lumpur, which is the city I was in, um, most often spoke English. That was pretty cool. If on the off chance they didn't, I knew enough Mandarin Chinese to get by. And so I would slip into Mandarin um, if they didn't speak um, English. And it worked out because there were a lot of Malaysian Chinese people in the country. Um, did not and still do not speak any Malay, however, unfortunately. Um, and after that, we would use Google Translate. In terms of working, uh, in terms of like working in different places, if I wanted to go a coffee shop or something like that, it was actually a lot easier to do there than it was to do in the U.S. because the U.S. is kind of swindling us with how they don't have free Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, Kuala Lumpur had free Wi-Fi at like every building. At, no matter where you went, you were always connected. And it was actually pretty reliable Wi-Fi too. Um, so that was really easy to be able to do even if I wanted to travel and take trips. It was also really great if I needed to do that um, sometimes and I had Western clients because like I would be traveling during the day and some of the calls would be later at night. So that really worked out. Um, and being able to immerse myself in another experience and go like, oh, if I wanted to do this, like if I wanted to make this permanent, I could do that and it would not be an issue at all. Also, earning USD while you go to a country that definitely does not charge in USD really helped, <laughs> really helped as well. It, it helped me save immensely. Um, it helped me kind of live like a king. You know, I had a three bedroom condo with two baths and like a resort style pool, no kidding. Oh, wow. And it was also, it was also 600 bucks. And that was what I was paying for my little tiny two bedroom when I lived in Mississippi. Um, so yeah, it's, I would, I would recommend trying it. If anybody is interested and hasn't, just make sure that you have the conversation with your clients first, especially if you have regular cadences or touch points with them. Uh, lots of upside, but a couple of potential pitfalls, it sounds like. Yep. All right. I have some lightning round questions for you. And because I'm the worst at lightning round, you know, just try to respond with a sentence or two. I usually respond with like five minutes. Paragraphs. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
but I'm sure you'll be better at this. And Rob, feel free to jump in if questions pop up. But okay, so um, advice on client boundaries in a sentence or two. Ooh, get to know what you like and you dislike, create your boundaries from that and make sure that you enforce your boundaries when clients break them because they will. What have you learned about business from your obsession with anime? Ah, <laughs> that it should be fun, that it should absolutely be fun and, and whimsical and that I get to decide that. Um, why Hufflepuff? I have very strong morals and values about uh, being honest and integritous. So I'm a goody two shoes. Okay, and last one, unless Rob, you have other lightning round I'll questions. I'll add one. Um, what is your best advice for someone who is new to copy chiefing? Again, I know this could be an entire presentation, but in a sentence or two. Ooh, best advice. Go into it with a space of humility. Just because you are reviewing someone's work does not give you the end-all, be-all authority, and it does not mean you're smarter than them. They just need your help to make it great. You're there to support. My only lightning round question, Raven, is who is your favorite TCC podcast host and why is it Rob? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm kidding. So. I just want to Do you have a real one, Rob? Do you have a no, real no, question? no. That's my only question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, All right. That's what you're uh, adding. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I do want to thank you, though, Raven, for coming on and just like presenting a masterclass about client relationships and finding clients, like walking through the sales process. Like, I think what you've shared is amazing. Having watched your progress over the last five or six years uh, is also amazing and really gratifying that we've been able to play at least a small part in, in that growth and just seeing where you've come from and where I think you're headed. Uh, you, you have an amazing business and I just appreciate your willingness to come and talk about it for the fourth time on the podcast, <laughs> which we didn't even talk about how many times we've done this and lost this interview, but this one for sure, the best and we're keeping it. They just get better every yeah. time, Raven. Thank you. And thank you both. Thank you both for allowing me, trusting me even to be on your platform. It has been such a joy and I'm so happy to be a part of the TCC community. And where can our listeners go to find you, to connect with you, um, to jump into your world? Sure. So if you want to get the very funny version of me, you can go to bit.ly backslash anti-site. So that's bit.ly backslash anti-site, S-I-T-E. Um, it is what I affectionately call my anti-site. And there's a big warning label at the top for you to be able to go through and read. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I am notoriously not on social media very much, but I do answer all of um, my messages. And so you can find me at my name, Raven Douglas. You can also search the Douglas draft and I should pop right up. Awesome. Thanks, Raven, for, for again, for the time, for just being in our community. Um, we are lucky to know you. Thank you. The feeling is definitely mutual. Rob, Raven and I both charge $700 for our first websites. I'm just curious, uh, you didn't share as we were chatting about it, but what did you charge for your first website package? 
Yeah, I wish I could remember my first website package. I'm guessing that it was probably somewhere around $700 to $1,000. My very first project that I ever worked on was $350. And it was uh, it was a, a project, uh, it was a freelance um, article. I can't even remember what the topic was, but it was for an MLM company that's now out of business. And um, that got me started. But I worked in-house for really for like the next four years. Um, I did occasional freelance projects during that time, but I really like spent my time learning how to be a copywriter in-house. So I was getting a salary and, and benefits uh, at that point in time. So that was a little bit different uh, for me. So I, I mean, I had several years of experience really before I started doing freelancing in any kind of serious way. But yeah, I'm thinking it was probably around $1,000, might've been $1,200 somewhere in that area. Yeah. I just, when I think I'm like, what, how did I come up with $700 for the, what what was my That's breakdown? That's the starting the website price number that everybody yeah. has in the back of their head. Right. I'm just wondering how we, you know, Raven and I both came to that conclusion. But, um, you know, I like this part of the conversation with Raven because we talked a lot about sales calls and that conversation um, with a prospect. And so I think there was a lot of great advice here. What stood out to me as far as what we can implement in our sales calls is just understanding the level of awareness of your prospect and understanding, you know, for Raven, she talked about, you know, she just needed to sell copy because a lot of her clients early on, her ideal clients just didn't really understand copy. They didn't understand what it could do, how it could help them. So if she could just sell them on the power of copywriting, she knew she could get in the door. And for, you know, for other prospects who are more savvy and do understand copywriting, the way that you present yourself in your own marketing and, and on sales call will be different. It might just be like selling the solution to the problem, or maybe it's selling you as the solution because they're already aware of the solution and they're talking to other copywriters. And so how are you going to sell your solution as the best option when they're jumping on five other sales calls? with other copywriters who all offer the same solution. And that's where you can really lean into your unique mechanism, like how you do what you do, all the ingredients that make your signature package so amazing and so much better than all the other options out there because of your unique mechanism and how you do what you do. And so I think that's just such a great way to think about your sales calls and just understand you know, where your prospect is entering into this conversation with you because it will change the way that you approach the sale. Yeah, I think anybody who's listening who struggles with the sales call ought to bookmark this episode of the podcast and go back and listen to how Raven walked through some of those scripts that she uses in talking with clients, um, communicating the value, like what you're saying, how she covers pricing, because this stuff is, it's, it matters. And if you get it right, you close a lot more projects. So there's some really good advice that, you know, again, bookmark it, go back, revisit it, maybe even copy, uh, copy it out of the transcript, paste it into a document that you've got there, you know, when you're on your sales call and you can actually use it almost word for word, the way Raven does it. And she, you know, she mentioned she got it from other copywriters as well. And so, yeah, let's, let's use it and, and be better at closing more sales. And also talking about money, Raven gave a lot of advice about how to talk about that in a way that feels comfortable. And, um, you know, the, the biggest takeaway is that you can just talk about it casually, right? To just make it comfortable for the person sitting across from you to even say something like, Hey, let's, 
discuss the elephant in the room. Like, let's talk money. So there are no surprises. And the whole no surprise concept really resonates with me because that's ultimately what can blow an entire sales conversation. It's if someone is surprised along the way, <laughs> not, in a, not in a good way, right? Not in the delight way, but surprised and maybe even a little offended because they didn't see that price tag coming. And so um, I think that's, if you can just avoid any negative surprises throughout your sales process and in the proposal, that's the best way to get in the door with a new client. Yeah, not even just in sales calls. Uh, you know, when when uh, in my personal life, like the only conflicts I really ever have with my wife is is it's always surprise based. It's, you know, we we have that conversation on Saturday morning. Hey, what's your plan for today? Hey, what's my plan for the day? And we set those expectations. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to get the garage swept out. And then yet yeah, we say, oh, okay, good. And then like, you know, four hours later, hey, here's five more things for you to do. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We already, <laughs> we already set the expectations. No surprises, right? That's, uh, yeah. That's surprises are bad, maybe with partners, but certainly with clients. Well, no, and that's why it resonated with me because Ezra, my husband is building a house right now. And he's like, he's building it with the team. And we, we talk about this nonstop because his whole deal with his contractors building the house with him is like no surprises, no surprises with this house. Like we've got to communicate clearly. I need to know what's happening, you know, how much it's going to cost. No. And there are a lot of surprises that have popped up with this, the build of the house. And so it's part of our conversation as partners. It's like, we can't surprise each other either. So let's take that into business. Um, <laughs> it works in business well too, no surprises. Setting accurate expectations and then meeting them is a key to just being, I mean, it's like one of the basic bring, you know, table stakes kinds of things that you bring to business. It's like, if you can't meet the expectations that you set, you're going to have trouble working with clients. So yeah, it's, it's Raven does it really well. It's great advice. Okay, so also with sales sales conversations, um, like you said, you could just bookmark this episode because Raven just rattled off a bunch of questions that she asks on her on her sales calls and then in the intake forum before she jumps on the sales call. And I was just writing all the questions down because you know a handful of the questions I could pull into my process too. So what I really liked is the question where Raven asks about past results the return on investment from past projects, past launches. Uh, because if you can pull in those numbers, then you can start to make some assumptions around what you could possibly deliver to your clients as far as the value. It also can help you, you know, assess where your client sits financially, you know, what that looks like, you know, if if that will help you with your proposal and your pricing. Um, and it also helps you, you know, look strategic and look like you know what you're doing and look like a professional and really impress your client on the call on the sales call because you're asking such a smart question that shows that you're interested in giving them a return on their investment so that was a powerful question that stood out to me yeah lots of really good questions the other thing that i loved was her guarantee or the idea of the until we get it right uh, guarantee as opposed to money back or, you know, all of the other things that we can do in our business to engender trust with our clients. 
being there for them until we reach a particular goal, until we do something, uh, that kind of a guarantee on a sales call or as part of your pitch can go a long way to building that trust that you want. And it's not going to work for every copywriter. There's certainly some clients that would take advantage of that kind of a guarantee to get you to keep rewriting and reworking and redoing things. But with the right client, and the right copywriter, you know, their, their business philosophy and approach, it could be a really good way to build that same trust on one of the sales calls that you have. Yes. And um, we did touch on copy chiefing just briefly in the lightning round, the spontaneous lightning round. Um, we've talked with uh, Raven about copy chiefing. She actually like she's taught workshops on copy chiefing. There's a lot more to add there. But in a sentence or two, I think she offered great advice around humility as a copy chief. And just a reminder that as a copy chief, you are not better than the copywriters working with you, um, but your role is really to support and to get the project across the finish line, to act as a guide. And so that was just, I don't, that was a great reminder for me because I do a lot of copy chiefing. And so I appreciated that advice. It is really good advice. I don't do a lot of copy chiefing because I think I'm really bad at this. I <laughs> I end up rewriting. Oh, are you and like I am better? I am better. No, it's it's not necessarily because it, it I'm better, but you know, oftentimes it's like, wait a second, that's not doesn't sound quite right in my ear or whatever. And so I know that I've had that impact on a couple of copywriters when I've gone back and rewritten things that were probably good enough, but for whatever reason, you know, I just needed to hear it in my voice. So really good reminder, something for me to remember, uh, I'm, I'm going to copy that and put it on a post-it note on my monitor here so I can not offend and, and not, uh, cause unnecessary work for the copywriters who, who write for me. Well, you copy chief me frequently because we, we copy chief each other. And I think you do that with humility and you do point out, um, things that I miss. And so I, I, I've never, you've never brought me down as a copywriter, but you have helped me. So I think you actually are a good copy chief and you're being too hard on yourself. Maybe I'm getting better. Maybe uh, uh, there are a few copywriters who might argue. Yes. We want to thank Raven Douglas for joining us for an incredible interview. You don't know how long this has been in coming. Obviously we met Raven almost five years ago. We've tried to connect with her on the podcast several other times, so we're glad to finally get it done. If you want to connect with Raven, we'll link to her website in the show notes. And if you want more resources about increasing your prices and pitching clients, listen to episode nine with Tarzan Kay about how she quickly grew her copywriting career. And we also recommend episode 157 with Laura Lopich about cold pitching. I just recently re-listened to that episode. It's a good one. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you like what you heard, take a screenshot of the episode with your favorite takeaway and tag us on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We love to see when you do that or leave a review in iTunes as we asked at the top of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole damn episode.